Hey, we're in Acts chapter 11. Take your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, or turn on your phone or your tablet, whatever you're using to follow along. Uh, if you don't have a Bible today, our ushers are going to have some. They're going to go down the aisle. If you, if you don't have a Bible today, but you want one so you can follow along in Acts chapter 11, just wave at our ushers and they'll give you one as they kind of walk back and forth. And pull out your sermon notes from your bulletin so you can follow along because today we've got to actually go back a month to connect to the end of Acts chapter 7 to connect to Acts chapter 11 where we are today. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen, who'd been appointed as a leader of the church, was killed by the opponents of the church. And in Acts chapter 7, really the church is, I don't want to say it's on the brink of extinction, but in Acts chapter 7, the church is in trouble because people are afraid, people are beginning to leave, uh, persecution is, is starting. And in Acts chapter 8, we meet a man named Saul who we're going to study his life all summer long. Eventually, he changes his name to Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. We're devoting this summer to the life of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 8 and 9, we learned a little bit of his backstory and how he became a Christian, how God called him into the ministry. In Acts chapter 10, we pick up a little bit on the Apostle Peter and where life left him. But in Acts chapter 11, we're literally connecting back to Acts chapter 7. Stephen was just killed persecution had broken out against the church, um, and Christianity was in trouble. The Christian church was in trouble um, because people didn't know what was going to happen if being a Christian meant that you might get killed, so everyone ran away. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 30, we find them, and we find out that what happened was miraculous. And here's what you need to write down before we start reading today. The church's worst day in Acts chapter 7. I mean, one of their leaders was killed, resulted in its best days in the future. I mean, what happened on a bad day in Acts chapter 7 actually served to bring many, many great days in the future. And let me say this to those of you who might be living in a bad day right now. Maybe you're in a bad season of life. Maybe you're having a bad week. Maybe you're having a bad month. Anytime Jesus steps into the midst of a bad season, the future can be really bright really fast. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 7. They were having a really bad day, but when Jesus stepped into the middle of it by touching the life of a man named Saul, man, the church exploded. And some of you have experienced that. You've gone through a really troubling season. You met Jesus in a unique way in that season, and your life has been forever different and forever better because of that. And if today is the day of trouble for you, I'm here to tell you that if you will cling to Jesus on your hard days, your future will have better days. I just really, really believe that. And I believe Acts chapter 11 is going to show us that. So in verse 19, here's what we pick up. Stephen is killed. The church is on the run. But look what happens as they're on the run. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Those are cities kind of heading north towards Turkey from Israel, if you can picture that map in your head. Spreading the word only among the Jews. Verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. You should underline that life. If you, in that, that verse, if you've been looking for something to put on your gravestone one day, I mean, there is no better sentence that can sum up the life of a Christian man or woman than Acts eleven twenty four. I mean, what a great thing to have people say about you behind your back. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. 
And a great number of people were brought to the Lord because of his life. What a good dude. I hope one day people will talk about me like they talk about Barnabas. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and they taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You should underline that verse. First time we hear the word Christian in the Bible. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and by Saul. Now, in Acts chapter 7, the church is on the run. And the church could possibly be extinct if people allow the fear that had crept in to keep them from living from Jesus. But instead of Christianity being on the run, when we open Acts chapter 11 and we connect back to the story, Christianity is now on the road. It, it was on the run, but instead of running away from Jesus, they've just kept Jesus with them and Christianity has kind of become a roadshow. It's like a traveling circus now. Wherever the church goes, Jesus is there and Jesus is moving. And what we find out is that God used Paul's Formerly Saul, at the end of seven, he's killing Stephen. But when we open Acts chapter 11, we see that God used Paul's spiritual successes and his spiritual failures. The things that Paul did wrong in Acts chapter seven, God allowed even the wrong things, even the mistakes in his life, God allowed to be used for good to help people meet Jesus. Why? Because God wants people to meet Jesus because when people meet Jesus, it changes their life. And you need to understand today, God will use your worst day if you will let him to allow people to find out who Jesus has been to you in the midst of your troubles. And God will allow your best day if you will allow him to reflect how God has been good to you so that people can meet Jesus because God is going to use men and women. He's going to use blacks and whites. He's going to use young and old. God is going to figure out a way to use the things that happen on planet earth to help people meet Jesus. And he wants to use your life the good, the bad, the pretty, and the ugly. God wants to use the great things in your life and the terrible things in your life to allow you to experience Jesus so people can meet Jesus. This is what Romans eight twenty eight says when it says we know that in all things, the good and the bad, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Some of you need to write Romans eight twenty eight in the margin of your Bible and you need to hang on to that because right now you are involved in something. It's not all things, but it is something that is killing you. And you need to understand, God is going to use that something in your life to help you know Jesus deeper and to help people meet Jesus if you'll just lean into what God is doing. But today we see Christianity on the road and we see this terrible event in the life of Stephen that ends up sending the church in all kinds of places it would have never been without persecution. First, we see, we're going to see three things, but first we're going to see what I call supernatural scattering. We're going to see a supernatural scattering. In verses 19 through 21, we find out some of the people who were in Jerusalem when Stephen was killed got scared. They went home, but instead of running away from the church, they ran to a new city and, and they just kept church going there. Here's what it says in verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, the men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch. And they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. 
Here's what the first Christian ended up doing, and they really, they weren't given a sermon on this. They just kind of did this. This was the DNA of early Christianity. For the early Christians, their place became their purpose. So when they were in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the place where they gathered and told people about Jesus. But then when they went home, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Crete, Antioch, when they went there, their place became their purpose. They basically said, God, we've been scattered God, I'm somewhere different today than I was yesterday. God, I'm not sure where I'm going to be next week. But here's how I'm going to live my life, God. Wherever you put me, I'm going to live for Jesus and tell people about Jesus. Their scattering they saw as supernatural. This week I had something happen that that got my attention. It, It wasn't intending to. Nobody was challenging me spiritually, but God challenged me spiritually through it. As we're getting ready to build our building and we're, we're deep into that process now. I'm hoping Sunday, July 12, to give a major update after a few more things have been ticked off the list of things that are going on in our building process, how well it's going. But we're several rounds now into meeting with the city, into getting things developed. And one of the things that we have to do, our civil engineer called me this week, and he said, Christian, we've got to have a meeting uh, with anyone who lives around the church, and we have to tell them what they're doing, what we're doing, and we have to um, allow them to ask questions, and we have to get all their feedback before we take our next step to the city. I said, well, how does that work? And he said, anyone who lives within 185 feet of our church property, we have to invite to a meeting and allow them to speak into the process. And I said, why, why do we have to do that? And he said, because it's possible that the church is going to impact anyone who lives within 185 feet of the building And we want them to be aware that we're going to be there. And he wasn't talking about spiritual impact. But that's how I heard it. And I thought, you're darn right we're going to impact people who live around the church with the gospel of Jesus. So I was like, yeah, let's have a meeting. Let's invite everyone within 1,085 feet and tell them we're building a church that we want to have impact on your life. And I thought, man, okay, Jesus. So, So I had a civil engineer remind me that our church is going to have impact on people that are near it. But have I ever thought about that for my house? How about the people who live within 185 feet of my front door? Are they going to be impacted for Jesus just because I'm there? What about the people that live within 185 feet of your cubicle at work? Are they going to be impacted for Jesus just because you're there? What about the people that live within 185 feet of where your athletic team practices on a weeknight or plays on a weekend? Are they going to be impacted for Jesus just because you're there? How about when you go out to do your job and you're out and about in Kansas City? Is anyone within 185 feet of you have the opportunity to be impacted for Jesus because you're there? See, the early Christians said, listen, where where I am, people are going, to be impacted for Je- are going to be impacted for Jesus. Just put me someplace, and that place becomes my purpose. Which makes me ask this question. What if God put us in our place on purpose? Not just for a purpose, but what if God put you in the house that you live in, in the neighborhood that you live in, in the city that you live in? What if God placed you on purpose for some specific impact? You say, Christian, how could you ever know that? I don't know, but what if he did? I heard a story from a guy in our church a few years ago that absolutely blew my mind. I mean, when he told me the story, I thought, that, that can't be true, but it's left me wondering. I heard a story from a man who came to our church. He came the second Sunday that we were open, September 25, 2011. And on that day, he gave his life to Jesus. He started getting real involved in our church. And one day, he heard my story about starting Journey. He heard that I was in Seoul, South Korea, that I'd been thinking about leaving ministry because I was just burned out by the way that I was doing it, that I was really discouraged. 
and that on October 23rd, 2009, I was in the basement of a church in Seoul, South Korea around 8 or 9 a.m. when a pastor from Australia talked about living in faith, and I believe that God spoke into my heart at that time that I was supposed to move my family to Lee Summit, Missouri, and to start a church. I'd never, to my knowledge, really been to Lee Summit. I'd lived in Kansas for the last decade. I'd lived in Ohio and Virginia before that. But I felt sitting in that basement that God was telling me to go to Lee Summit and start a church October 23rd, 2009, around 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. He heard me say that. And he said, Christian, when you said that, you were preaching when you said that. He said, man, chills went up, just went up my spine. Got goosebumps on my arms. He said, I knew I had to meet with you. So it took us like, I don't know, four months to get together. He's really busy. Um, I was really busy. But we finally got together and we sat down. And he said, um, I have to tell you my story. So I said, tell me your story. So he told me a story about growing up in a real small town in southeastern Kansas. Uh, and he said, around seventh grade, he said, I, I began to drink alcohol. And he said, I very quickly became an alcoholic. And he said, I have struggled with alcohol my entire life, starting in middle school, my entire life. Um, every weekend I struggled with alcohol. And he said, when it went to college, it just, it just got out of hand. And he said, I was able to kind of get through college, but I, you know, after college, it just, it got really, really bad. And he said, on my 24th birthday, some friends for work threw a party for me. And he said, Christian, I drank more that night than I've ever drank. And he said, I, I did the most embarrassing things in my life, to this point in my life, on that night. He said, I had some coworkers there who I offended horribly. He said, I said and did some things that should have gotten me fired from my job. They didn't. But he said, I went home that night, and I was, just em- I was embarrassed and ashamed about who I was. And I did not know how to change. So he said, I got home a little bit after midnight that night. And he said, I'm laying in my bed. And he said, I just cried, Lord, please send someone to help me. I don't know what to do. Lord, please send someone to help me because I don't know what to do. I said, okay. You know, I've, I've heard some stories like that. He said, Christian, that was October 22nd, 2009, my 24th birthday. I said, okay. He said, I prayed that prayer on October 22nd, 2009. About the time, October 23rd, 2009, you were sitting in South Korea in the basement of a church. And he said, let me tell you what happened. He said, I didn't live in Lee Summit at that time. You didn't live in Lee Summit at that time. But he said, two years later, I found myself moving to Lee Summit. And he said, I moved into my apartment on September 18th, 2011, the day we started the church. He said, the person who lived there before me had left their mail in their mailbox. So I moved into my apartment. One of the first things I did is I saw we had mail. I checked it and there was a flyer for your church that had started that day in the mailbox. So he said, the next Sunday I came, I gave my life to Jesus. And he said, for four, you know, now it's going on four years. He said, since that day, he said, I've been sober and my life has changed forever. He said, now let me ask you a question. Is it possible that when I prayed that prayer, God spoke to you in South Korea, told you to come here, knowing I was going to move here on the day you started the church, knowing there's going to be a flyer left in the box so I could come and find out about it. Like, do you think God would have done all that for me? And you know what I said? Uh... I was like, dude, that's crazy. Let me see your driver's license. You know, I was like, you're lying. That's not your birthday. I was like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Do you think, do you think, Christian, that when I prayed in Kansas City, God told you in South Korea that I needed help and to come and help me because on the day that I was going to move into an apartment, you were going to start a church. It was going to change my life. Christian, do you, think, do you think that could be possible? Does God care about me that much? I was like, man, that's crazy. And this year, he'll celebrate four years sobriety. I have a lot of Christian friends that make fun of me because I don't drink alcohol. They think I'm weird. 
But when you have people in your life who count every day that they're sober, as their pastor, you don't want to be a stumbling block. Those of you who are parents, and you have teenagers that every Friday and Saturday night have to say no to alcohol parties, man, we've got to be cautious that we can stand up for the person that counts every day as sobriety, for the teenager who has to say no at party and say, you know, at least I know one person who doesn't drink. I mean, somebody, I feel like God has said, be an example to the one person that's looking for one person. You know, I'm going to say no tonight because I know someone else is saying no tonight. I feel like God's really challenged me in that area. That's not the point of this message, but the point of this message is to think that God may have placed you exactly where he placed you for someone that years ago prayed someone would come to help them. What if your neighbor prayed last night? Or what if your neighbor prayed five or six years ago as their marriage was falling apart that God would send someone to help them and then you moved in next door and you didn't know you were an answer to prayer yet? What if the person that you sit next to at your job five or six years ago prayed a prayer of God, I don't know how I'm going to make it if you don't send someone to help me, and now you sit next to them at work? What if some family member You're going to see at some family reunion, their life's falling apart and nobody knows about it, but they've been praying, God, send someone to help me. You see, if we would allow ourselves to believe that God is sovereign, what does that mean? That God moves, that God is in control of things. This is a point on your message notes. If we would allow ourselves to believe that God is sovereign, we would see our scattered life as a mission field. We would just open our eyes to, if if we thought that God really put us places to impact certain people, we would open our eyes to those places and those people and say, okay, God, what exactly am I supposed to do? But is it possible, God, that when someone prays in Kansas, you tell someone in South Korea to move there and help them? I don't know, but what if that's the way it does work? What if that's the way God works? That when we feel scattered, when our life feels out of control, it's perfectly in the control of God so that he can move us where people need the most impact from Jesus. Supernatural scattering is crazy to think about if we believe in a sovereign God. But they didn't just scatter. We see number two, what I call super intentional seeding. They scattered with purpose. They didn't just go to a place and say, look where God has me. They went to a place and said, I'm supposed to do something here for Jesus. Look at these four verses, verses 22 through 26. It says, news of this, the people were becoming Christians in Antioch reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, those five verses... Seem very routine to us. God moved, found out in Jerusalem. Somebody from Jerusalem went, reported back to Jerusalem, all's good, called Paul. Paul came down and started teaching. That's not how it worked. It took way more effort than that. It took way more intentionality than that because somebody had to go from Antioch to Jerusalem, probably on foot, hundreds of miles, over weeks and weeks, if not months of months, until the people in Jerusalem, God is moving in Antioch. So then Barnabas probably takes another several months walks down to Antioch and says, this is unbelievable, God is moving. So he sends someone back to Jerusalem over the course of several months to say things are going good here. While he went to Tarsus hundreds of miles away to get Saul and told Saul, man, things are going crazy. Will you come back? Then they took many more, probably this took more than a year of lining everything up so they could teach people about Jesus in a way that would radically impact their life. It was super intentional seeding. 
And what we found is they taught people so much about Jesus, they began to live like Jesus. And they actually, this was the first place anybody called anyone a Christian. And by the way, Christian was not a label. 2,000 years ago, it was a description. They're basically saying these people have learned so much about Jesus, they're living like Jesus. Christianity today is a label. I wish it was a description, but it's not for many. Most people would describe Christians, some in very unflattering terms. But when Christianity becomes a description of your life, and Christianity means a follower of Jesus or one who lives like Jesus. When people looked at the people of Antioch, they said they've learned so much about Jesus, they actually, they, they are living like Jesus. Now, have you ever seen people who like become such good friends, like they start dressing alike and they start looking alike? Like you ever have a best friend and you've shown up to school or work like wearing the same thing? One day, Pastor Scott and I used to do that all the time when we worked together, and I'd always make him change. They'd take off the tie, because I was in a little a higher notch than him. So if we wore the same thing, I'd make him change, and I'd keep mine on. You ever, you ever seen people who start looking like their pets? Or their pets start looking like them, and it's like, man, that's kind of freaky. Like, you kind of look like your dog a, a little bit. Like, these people in Antioch, these people in Antioch started looking like Jesus. Like, they, the seed that they were being taught spiritually sunk so deep in their spirit They started looking like Jesus to people on the outside. And here's what we find out. When a Christian becomes intentional about one, living for Jesus, and when a Christian becomes intentional about two, living for people, when someone who lives for Jesus also intentionally lives for people, the intersection of that is called ministry. Or I say it this way on your notes, the people in your life, when you live for Jesus and live for people, the people in your life are going to come into contact with the Jesus in your life. And ministry occurs. If you would say, this week I'm going to live for Jesus. I talked to so many people who are doing this summer spiritual growth plan. They're reading their Bible consistently for the first time ever. Some for the first time in a long time. And they're like, you know, it takes a little more effort. It takes a little more focus. But I, I really feel like I'm living for Jesus this summer. That's awesome. When you're living for Jesus and you're also living for people, you love people, what's going to happen is the people in your life are going to bump into the Jesus in your life. And that's when ministry occurs but you have to live for jesus and people one of the most beautiful places on planet earth you wouldn't believe this until you saw it because probably for what you heard or what your mind pictures when i say this is not the reality but the dead sea is one of the most beautiful places on planet earth i mean it is it is if you've ever seen the caribbean if you've ever been to hawaii i mean it is the most crystal clear aqua blue water because it's the lowest spot on planet earth there's not very many waves in it i mean it it looks like a lake except the color of the caribbean and maybe even a little bluer i mean it is the most beautiful body of water that you could ever picture just sitting out in the middle of the desert but it's dead there's no fish in there um there's no boats in there because the toxicity of the water would would kill the motor um it's dead uh, the, the water, you can't drink it. If you get a cut on your body, it's, I mean, it's just going to fry you when you walk in. You can't get it in your eyes. I mean, it, the water is beautiful, but it's dead. It's toxic. It is deceptively beautiful. And here's why the Dead Sea is dead. Because the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea is at such a low elevation that nothing flows out of it. So healthy flows in, but when healthy flows in and stops, eventually it all dies. And it reminds me a little bit of the church because there are some churches that are deceptively beautiful on Sunday mornings. 
there are churches full of people with their Bibles on their lap, with their pens in their hand, with their notes out. They're singing, they're worshiping, they're raising their hands, they're yelling like crazy people on the second row. We're yelling here today. I mean, it, like it really, it's quite the thing to look at. It is it's beautiful to see, but it's deceptively beautiful. Because when a church on Sunday morning takes in, but then they don't go throughout the week and, and give out Jesus, like if all you ever do is take in Jesus, but you never give out Jesus, you're like the Dead Sea. You've got healthy flowing in, but it stops when it gets to you. And a church full of people who will live for Jesus, but who will not in turn also go and live for people, that's a deceptively beautiful, dead church. And these people left Jerusalem on the run. They were living for Jesus, but they also lived for the people in their lives. And listen, the reason, the, the region around the Dead Sea is one of the most desertous, sparse areas in the entire Middle East. You literally cannot survive there. It's so hot and it's so barren because there's nothing from the Dead Sea you can take to add life or value to anything. And there are some Christians who are living beside some people who are parched spiritually. There are some Christians who are working next to people who are dying spiritually. And if you would just allow a little bit of the Jesus in you to kind of sprinkle them every now and then, it might bring some life and some hope to them and possibly it would allow them to meet Jesus in a way that would change them forever. So as Christians, we have to be aware not to be deceptively beautiful where we take in, but nothing ever flows out of us from Jesus. Because when we live for Jesus and we live for people, people will come into contact with Jesus and ministry happens. And then the coolest thing about this church in Acts chapter 11 is we see supernatural scattering where they went, God used. And we see this super intentional living, but then we see this super impactful service. We see this super impactful service. This church was a church that made a difference. That's what I mean by service. Not a church service, but in serving people. We have people in our church today wearing difference maker shirts. We have banners hanging up saying difference makers. We're saying we want to build a building to make a difference in our community. I wear a little wristband throughout the week that says difference makers. On Sunday, I wear one that's written in Hebrew that says difference maker because I want to remind myself that God uses Christians to make a difference in the life of people. And we see that here in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Look what happened as they were getting close to Jesus, as they were having impact on people. It says, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. It happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Listen, basically this church that was together living for Jesus, living for people, impacting where they live, heard about a need that needed to be met, and they said, we should do something. Someone stood up and said, there's going to be some hurting people in the world, and this church said, well, we, sh we should do something. And it's interesting because this is the first time, the first recorded time in the book of Acts that any local community congregation took an offering and one of the first offerings that the church ever took was to meet the needs of hurting people. That's the reason they were motivated to give money. There's some people who need some stuff. We should help. This was the message and the thought of the early church. Because the reality is, when someone pours blessing into your life, many times we see it as the hand of God in our life. You know, one of the places we do ministry is in India. And you may or may not remember, on December 26, 2004, one of the most devastating natural um, tragedies ever happened. A tsunami hit the Indian Ocean, and more than a quarter million people were killed over the next 
24 hours in 14 different countries. I want you to think about that. 250,000 people were killed by the tsunami. A few years after that tsunami killed people, we were in India, and we were working with a ministry who did a lot of ministry along the coast of southern India where tens of thousands of people had been killed. India had the third most people killed of any of the major 14 countries that were hit. And we asked the guy about the tsunami and what had happened. We were with a pastor named Raymond riding around in a car in India. And we said, tell us what you're doing. And he told us what we were doing. And said, man, are the people still afraid of the ocean? What do they say about the tsunami? And he said something that I had to ask him what he meant. He said, they actually call that tsunami the golden tsunami. So what, is, what does that mean, golden tsunami? Why would they call it a golden tsunami? He said, they call it the golden tsunami because although there was so much devastation, it was followed by so much blessing that they saw the tsunami, the end result of the tsunami as a blessing because old villages made of straw were washed away and people from all over the world came and built concrete homes in their places. And he said, fishing villages, you know, which were on the coast, they and their boats were swept away. And he said, people from around the world, most of them Christians came and replaced it with new boats, better boats, better fishing nets, better opportunities. So they said they, they looked at the blessing that resulted from the tragedy He said they actually called it the golden tsunami. It was a bad day, but it resulted in so much blessing, they actually thanked God for the tsunami. And I thought, man, shouldn't people see churches like that? Like if you can see a tsunami as a blessing because good comes from it, shouldn't everyone in our community think of churches as golden churches because of of what the church is doing in their life, because the church blesses them, because the church helps them? The reality is a church has to exist to meet the needs of their community, not just to teach the Christians in the community. God's church was birthed, and in the book of Acts, we see a church aware of needs and meeting needs. And one of my mentors, a guy by the name of Jimmy Dodd, who preaches at our church often, he'll preach here July 26th next, told me before we started our church, he said, Christian, this has to be the goal of your church. He said, don't try to be the best, or he said, try to be the best church for Lee Summit, not in Lee Summit. Because you're not going to be the best church in Lee Summit. I've heard you preach. That's not going to happen. And I was like, all right. Thanks, Jimmy. And he's like, no, I'm just kidding. But he said, listen, your church is not going to be for everyone. Your church can't be the best church in Lee Summit. It's going to be too hot some days. It's going to be too cold some days. It'll probably be too loud for most. I mean, your church is not going to be the best church in Lee Summit. But it can be the best church for Lee Summit if you can figure out what Lee Summit needs. So we said, okay, what do they need? Help us figure that out. So pastor serve, a ministry that exists in Kansas City to figure out the needs of people in the community, did a survey on Lee Summit, and here's what they found out about the needs of Lee Summit. So Christian, one out of every two families who lives in Lee Summit is under crippling financial stress right now. One out of two. 50% of the families in Lee Summit are living with major financial stress. One out of three has gone through a divorce and is struggling to figure out life as a single adult again. One out of two, crippling financial stress. One out of three, dealing with the outcome of a divorce. And one out of four are dealing with devastating discouragement, grief, depression, anxiety, or substance abuse issues. One out of four. That's your community. That's who you have to figure out how to help. It's why when we talk about building a building, we talk way more about the ministry that we want to do in the building because we believe as a church, it's our job. We are responsible to coach and to counsel and to minister to people who are trying to 
live their life through financial stress that's about to kill them. We are responsible as a church to find one in three people who are at least some who have gone through a divorce and, and to help them figure out how to live life again at a normal, happy clip and how to move forward. We are responsible as God's church to find one out of four people dealing with devastating discouragement, anxiety, depression, grief, substance abuse problems. I say, man, let us show you how Jesus can help you. We are responsible to build a place that can facilitate those ministry needs in our community. But all those are kind of thematic, meaning you can't, you can't really do a drive to do anything about this. We said, okay, we're going to meet those needs. But we began to ask the question that Acts 11 challenges us with. We, we began to ask questions like this. How, how have we been supernaturally scattered? And have we been supernaturally scattered here? Like, has God sovereignly placed us in this school or does this just happen to be the place that we've met for the last three and a half years? You know, is, is it that God put us at Summit Lakes for a reason? We begin to ask questions like these. Do we have a spiritual awareness of the people and the families touched by this school? There are seven elementary schools in the Lee Summit West School District that will send kids through these hallways. Thousands of children and families that are impacted, probably one of the greatest influencers in their life is this school district and this school building. We begin to ask questions like this. What needs can, can we meet that Jesus would want to meet? Like just physical, tangible needs. What can we do because we're at a certain place at a certain time that needs to be done that Jesus would want to be done? So we started calling the schools in this area. We called the seven elementary schools in this area. We talked to their guidance counselors. We talked to some of their assistant principals and their principals and said, we're here, we exist in your community we want to help. What do you need? That was our question. What do, you, what do you need? We want to help. What do you need? And they said, we need, the biggest need we have is to make sure all our kids are supplied really well for school so they can step into a learning environment ready to go. We said, okay, how, how, how do we do that? And school started telling us, we have this many kids that need a backpack full of school supplies. And another one said, we have this many kids that need a backpack full of school supplies. We had another school, seven different schools that said, here's what we need. You want to help us? You want to help people who are impacted by the place that you're at? Here's what we need. So we put together, it's inside your bulletin, you can pull it out, what we're calling our back-to-school backpack project. Because we believe, just like in Acts chapter 11, that we're here for a reason. We believe we meet in this school for a reason. And we're so grateful that the school district has been so kind and so generous in hosting us for so long. Churches could never do enough to support their local school district and how they have treated us. But when we go to the school and say, what do you need? We know people need Jesus. We get that. We, we know parents need comforting. We, we get all that. But like tangibly, what do you need that we can give you? They said, we need backpacks filled with school supplies. So our goal as a church between now and August 15 is to buy, assemble, gather, and deliver 250 backpacks to seven local elementary schools for 250 elementary school students and families who's, here, here's what I think. I think a lot of their parents have already been saying, God, you're going to have to help me with this. And they're just hoping God's listening and they're going to realize because of what our church is doing that he is. Say, how can I help? You can help a lot of different ways. We have calculated that to buy a backpack and to put all the school supplies in it, they're different kindergarten through sixth grade, it was going to be around $50. So a lot of you in here who can say, hey, I, I will give an extra $50 to purchase a backpack filled with school supplies for a student. But not everyone can give. Now, some can give a lot. 
Some of you say, listen, I don't have 10 minutes to even buy an eraser, but I'll give $1,000, go, go have somebody buy 10. You know, you know I, 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 can give, I can give a lot, I don't have a lot of time. Some of you say, I can't give anything right now, but I can help, so what, what can I do? Some of you say, I'd love to make this a project for our family. So you can give, and then we'll go get stuff. Or option number two, you can shop. You can tell us, hey, I, I want to get this myself, so you can check this, and we'll send you an email and say, here's exactly what you need to get, and you can go get that, you and your family, and you can bring it back. You can be a surrogate shopper. Say, what does that mean? That means there are people who are going to give money who don't have time to go get it. You have time to go get it, but maybe you don't have money to give right now. So you say, I'll shop for someone who can't shop. And we can put you on an email list and say, hey, we're going to give you some money. Go buy all these things. You can sort and pack. We're going to have piles of glue and markers and pencils and backpacks to get sorted and packed up. Or you can help deliver and take them to schools. We've told these schools, we don't want you to do anything special for us or our church. We're not going to wear our church shirts. This isn't a journey thing. This is a Jesus thing. Listen, if if people believe journey is blessed, then that's only going to go so far. If they believe Jesus is blessed, then that might hang with them the rest of their life. So we'd rather them know Jesus than journey. We think that's probably healthier for people. But as a church, we've been shown a need in our place we can meet. And it's up to us to do something about it. You see, in Acts chapter 11, someone stood up and said, there's a need. And the church said, all right, how can we help? And everyone did what they could do. Now, the truth is, if no one gives for this, we're going to do it anyway. As a church, we'll take a portion of our missions budget and we'll go spend it. I had actually somebody ask me as they did the math on this. This is close to a $12,000 project. So Christian, do you really believe you ought to ask people in the church for more money after all they're giving for the building, after all we're doing for this, like we already give away. Do you really think this is the time to ask for more money for stuff like this? And my answer was, if we don't do stuff like this, I don't want to build a building. Because we've been called to do stuff like, this is more important than a building. So if we can't do both, one's going to get left behind and it's not going to be kids in our community who are in need. So yeah, I believe it's the right time. You say, what if a little less comes in for the building? We'll get a few less chairs. Some of them sit on the floor for a little while until you get motivated to buy some more and then we'll buy some more chairs. I mean, we'll figure it out. It'll all work out. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be okay. But I believe God has shown us a need that our church, who I know loves Jesus, and who I know loves people, this is a chance for those two things to intersect and for us to do something. So I'm going to ask you to pray about helping in one of those five ways and to say, let's, let's make it happen. And our church, by August 15, is going to drop a bunch of backpacks off at schools. And, and we're not going to say, you're welcome, journey. We're going to give them to the counselors and say, you give them to the families. Don't even mention us. But we want in the back of that counselor's mind them to know. And geez, the people in this community who act like Jesus... And they're really getting it done. That's what we want the testimony of our church and our Jesus to be. Let's pray together.